Today on the Zabecast, eat more French fries. Your wish is my command, sir. Big shakeup coming into ESPN Radio, and do not look at Alex Smith's leg on the internet. Ron Thomas, the 394th placed vote getter for Mr. Basketball of Indiana in 1986, joins me to break down what else, the last dance. Plus, what does the mythical man month mean, and why is it relevant today? Your daily Kickstarter of me is locked and loaded, so buckle up and let's go! <laughs> Here we go! Tuesday, April 28, 2020. Thank you for joining me. If you do not do anything else today, let me recommend you do not look at the picture of Alex Smith's leg just four days after. Oh, God. Oh, I, I told you not to look at it. Alex Smith's leg four days after it was broken in a game for the Washington Redskins in October of 2018. A break that nearly cost him that leg and nearly cost him his life due to multiple infections and reinfections in the following days. It is, wow, it's part of what is being called Project 11, uh, which is a documentary on his comeback that is being produced with Stefania Bell, ESPN, and the Washington Redskins, and it is going to be, I think, very fascinating. It will be stomach-churning as well if you're not able to handle that stuff, but wow. It just goes to once again reinforce any given play, anytime, anywhere on that field, catastrophe could strike. And it was just a normal-looking sack, too. And it was just like, whoa, what happened there? Bam. I have total admiration for Alex Smith. The question I have is what is the team's plan going to be? Handling him, handling his money, handling what I'm sure is an insurance policy that could relieve them of some liability. Is he really going to try to come back and play? Or is this just an effort to try to, I don't know. Is he doing it because he has to to collect on the insurance? I don't know. All I know is Alex Smith is a freaking stud. And this documentary is going to be very, very interesting. Eat more fries. Well, you didn't have to ask me twice. There are silver linings to the current pandemic. One of them is that Belgians are being asked to eat more French fries because they are expected to have a potato surplus. First, there is a surplus of chicken wings thanks to No March Madness. Now... Belgium says they are going to tell people, just eat them. Please eat the potatoes. Residents are supposed to eat an extra portion of frites or frites each week in order to counteract a sizable surplus due to the pandemic. Potato farmers in Belgium will be sitting on 750,000 tons of potatoes this year, and there's a chance it'll go to waste if people don't start eating more. Unlike the U.S., fries are more of a meal in Belgium. In fact, even though we assume French fries came from France, there's evidence to suggest they may have come from Belgium instead. Either way, they're serious about their frites, and they are the world's largest exporter of frozen fries. So you know the situation is serious. All I can say is, Belgium, I'm on the case. I and other almost morbidly obese Americans are on the case. Send them my way. 
Big shakeup coming at ESPN Radio? Maybe. Andrew Marshawn reports, New York Post, that ESPN Radio is in the process of what could be a complete transformation that may impact every part of its schedule and eventually lead to Dan Lebitard no longer being on the network. No! No! Where's my soundbite on that? Oh, I unplugged it here. Hold on a second. This is a very organized podcast. I could have taken it out and put it back in and then fixed no! it in post-production. Not possible! Not possible! I, uh, I am not ashamed to say that uh, Lebitard is one of a handful of professionals in the industries, industry, guys in the radio industry that do radio shows that I, I really respect and enjoy their product. Also, there's a potential of Mike Greenberg to radio. How come I don't have right next to my no, not possible? No! Not possible! Not possible! I need, I need the office uh, Michael Scott no, no, no bite. Uh, that's what I need handy there. Why is there a buzzing? Can you hear that buzzing? I can hear that buzzing. What's going on? Why is there a buzzing? Come on, buzzing. What's wrong with you? Can you hear that? It's driving me crazy. Okay, there we are. I've taken it down a little bit. Here we go. There we go. All right, so Greenberg back to radio. Now, are they getting the band back together, possibly? No, God! <laughs> there we go. <laughs> no, God, please, no! 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 Apparently, Will Kane is out in afternoons. He's expected to sign a contract with Fox News and Fox Nation. ESPN declined comment on that. ESPN is also strongly considering changing up its morning program of Golic and Wingo as Trey Wingo's contract is up this year. They've not yet decided how it could replace Golic and Wingo, though Mike Golic and Mike Golic Jr. could remain in some capacity. I think Mike Golic Jr. is pretty good. I think his dad is just a very generic sports guy. Wingo is the lead host on ESPN's NFL draft coverage, but with the economic impact of the sports shutdown, he may not be in a good position to be choosy. You kidding? course not. His Twitter bio also says he's, quote, not really a morning person, unquote, which would make the 6 a.m. daily start time incompatible. Well, he's already doing it, so there you go. A reunion of Mike and Mike putting Greenberg and Golick back together is not on the table for a variety of reasons, but one is it conflicts with Greenberg's TV program. Greenberg makes $6.5 million annually he could be eventually offered a radio midday slot that is around 1 to 3 p.m. for reasons I don't know. Do you, do you need more Mike Greenberg? Do you want more Mike Greenberg? You know, for a fraction of those salaries, ESPN, you could scour the nation for qualified, dynamic. Radio is what we do, and it's all we do, hosts. And you could hire us, and you could market us, And you could say, listen to this guy. He is dynamic. Now, you're not going to have a strict control over me and others that are independent voices. But you can set us within certain guidelines. You could give us a list of words or topics we're not allowed to talk about. But just give us free reign to paint, you know? Get people who know how to do this medium. Stop trying to do radio, quote radio, as just some brand extension of ESPN. 
The one to three spot is currently held by Jason Fitz. Nice guy, former drummer for some country music band. He does first take, your take, which is just really setting up rewarmed takes from Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman. That's a fucking radio show. Hey, here's what two other guys said on TV earlier. There you go. There, first take, your take. Here's the first take and now my take, which uh, who's ta- are you whose take are we doing right now? ESPN radio execs are high on Fitz. Of course they are. He's handsome, he's polite, doesn't say things that would offend. They love him. Anyway, uh, he'd be in the mix if Greenberg ultimately landed from 1 to 3 p.m. They're probably looking for ways to make Greenberg earn more of that money, the $6.5 million. They're like, all right, look, we got to cut back here. We're taking it in the ass with all these shutdowns. So guess what? Greeny, you get to do a couple hours of radio now. Congratulations. That's the gig for $6.5 million, buddy. As for Lebetard, he still has more than a year left on his deal, but there's a feeling among many that his program does not mesh with the tastes of Norby Williamson, who is ESPN's executive vice president and the point person on ESPN Radio's programming. Lebetard does more of a variety show. <gasps> Excuse me, variety. Well, you, you got to tighten. Seriously, tighten the fuck up. You don't have shit plugged in. You're burping in the middle of a... I just had Chipotle. I'm just at Chipotle, man. What are you... Well, tighten up. Your people expect more than this. All right, sorry about that. <clears throat> Norby Williamson apparently does not like the fact that Lebetard does more of a variety show rather than strictly sports. In other words, it's a show that's funny, that's a bit mischievous, if not subversive. It makes fun of itself. It makes fun of the entire ecosystem of sports. It talks animals. It talks guy stuff. It's quite enjoyable. Hey, Norby. It's your best show. I I know. I'm whispering. In July, Lebetard got into trouble with ESPN after challenging the network's no pure politics edict in July and calling the network cowardly while denouncing President Trump. Well, he hates Trump, so put him in the in the giant train car with most in the sports media. Since then, Lebetard has steered away from politics. Lebetard makes around three and a half million per year. If taken off radio, they could he could still have his own TV show and continue with his podcast network. At one, while at one point ESPN might have considered going outside the network, yeah, hey, they're not hiring guys that burp on the air, so give it up, Baldy. But it's much more likely to go internal if it makes a move. ESPN is very high on Mina Kimes. Oh, for the, for the love of God. Mina Kimes. Oh, we love her. Isn't she great? Yeah, why? She did, she's great. Listen to her. Yeah? What what makes her great? What does she say? What what's her take on things? Does she make you laugh? Is like she a great uh take writer? Does she have soaring uh soliloquies about the state of sports? What what? Uh Max Kellerman's being talked about. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, it just just recycle it all. They're really not in the radio business. They're in the ESPN business, and they got to put some of their product and some of their personalities on radio. I'm not bitter. It's fine. I just wanted to help them out. Like, I mean, I think they could. If it's not me, I'll point you to three or four other guys, radio-wise, 
that would be really good for you. You just have to give up a little bit of fucking control, ESPN, and let personalities have the magic word, a personality. Let's talk last dance. Our man Ron Thomas is in the house. Steven. Hello, Ronnie. I described you as Mr. 394 of vote getters for Mr. Basketball in Indiana in 1986. True or no? 88. What are you you saying? I got votes for Mr. Basketball? Yeah. No. Who told you that? I don't know. I just made it up. Just go with it, right? No, you definitely made that up. I was a better (laughs) football player than basketball. In, In high school, that is. Yes. Very good. Uh, 88 was the year, not 96. Did yeah, I say 96? Not 86. No. I yeah, 86. I graduated 88. in 88. I just it. turned 50. Oh, that's right. Mazel, mazel. Good things. All right. <laughs> All right, let's dig right into it, man. Episodes three and four were better than one and two, I thought. And the series just keeps getting better and better. Let's start with your big takeaway from episodes three and four of The Last Dance. Well, after watching one and two, you wonder what is going to be next. And the people that are doing this or producing it, they obviously know exactly what the hell they're doing because I couldn't stop. Not, for, not only did I not want to stop watching it, but I hated it when it was over. Yeah. And it's got me thinking, gosh, there's only six more episodes. Right. There's only I, six left. We should be saying, this is great. There's six more of these but we're already regretting having eaten the first four. Yeah. And you know what, you know, what's funny, Steve is I don't watch, um, you know, I watch Sopranos, but I don't want, I don't, I did not watch. uh, See, I don't even know. What's the one with the drug dealer. Oh, the wine. No, no, no. The, the popular thing on that. Oh oh, yeah. Breaking bad. Yeah. Breaking bad. And the other one you like the, uh, see, I'm serious. My favorite Deadwood. Well, but the other one you always talk about. But my point is, is I don't watch that shit. I don't don't watch Ozark. Ozark is sort of like a Breaking Bad type deal for Netflix. Yeah. So I don't watch that. This is my shit. That's my point. (laughs) Well, yeah. See, this is the thing. Like, to me, the most remarkable thing about all of this is you watch it and you say to yourself, this was all real. This all happened. You couldn't, if you wrote this with the characters and, and, and you fleshed them out out of nothing, you'd say, oh, come on. A fat GM they all hated, yet when they won a championship, he's yeah. dancing like a fool in the oh, aisle I of the plane on the way and, home. And I, can't, I can't get that vision out of my head either. I think that was when they beat... Uh, that was when they beat Detroit to yes, go to the finals. To go to the yeah, finals, but, right. Yeah, what's the, it was a championship, Eastern Conference, but... The thing, Steve, is that uh, to have to have this play out in front of you, the wonderful thing is, is we watched it. I remember I'm watching what I I did watch and I loved it when it happened. And in, in this day and age, the notion of a player leaving his team to go to Vegas just to blow off some steam for 48 hours, which turned into, and this was the best part of it, you know, the counter just rattles up into the, you know, 80 hours you know later. Now, the one thing the documentary did was it made it seem like Jordan went to Vegas to fish him out of some random hotel room. In fact, he actually went to Rodman's apartment in Chicago to say, time to come to practice. Right. Carmen well, Electra was still there, and she was still a little bit intimidated by Jordan coming, but it's still a good story. Well, speaking from a guy who's been on benders before, <laughs> yes, 
Yeah, which is again, I brought Ronnie this up 1. before. Ronnie 1.0. Which, which, yeah, which is why I'm sober for eight years. I'll say it again. And if any of you out there are struggling, get sober. I can help you. Reach out to Ronnie. But, hey, but listen, when you go to Vegas, when I used to go to Vegas, I didn't sleep, brother. I know. I didn't sleep. I went and I the next when just when I thought I was going to wind down, I went harder and harder. And then right. when you get on that airplane to head back to wherever you're from, right. Then you're out. It's, like a well, then, and then when you get home, it's three or four days, five days to recover. <laughs> and I'm sure you know Rodman didn't go out there and sl- to sleep, especially when he's got that piece of ass on his arm. One thing, uh, yeah. And by the way, Carmen Electra still uh, yeah, popping the radar gun in the in the '90s. <laughs> still yes. has her fastball. I I thought about what. First of all, in today's day and age, a player couldn't just go on a bender. It'd be so overcovered. It would be like, this is outrageous. I can't believe it. But it happened back then. And then the other thing was, I'll imagine today's stars, and I don't want to name names, but <clears throat> Katie, <clears throat> LeBron, <clears throat> yeah. uh, Westbrook, uh, they would tweet something cryptic or post something on Instagram that was passive aggressive about their teammate being gone and partying without them. What did Jordan do? First, he realized, okay, I'd like a vacation. But I'm Michael Jordan. I don't have that luxury. I've got to keep this team together. But I need Rodman because Pippen is off doing his thing. So if you got to let him go, let him go. But then when it came time when he had missed his return, Jordan took it upon himself as a leader, Ron, to yes. go get Rodman. And then not only that, but the, the footage they got of him uh, at practice where Phil's like, okay, Dennis, I need you to get in shape, get ready to play. And Jordan says, hey, coach, he made it here, okay? Let's not push too hard. And they have and footage of that. Yes. Footage to, of that. You get to hear this shit that you would never imagine you'd get to be inside the team huddle like that. To me, that was both an amazing act by Jordan to both have his teammates back in Rodman and at the same time add a little bit of levity and tell the coach, hey, I'm going to help us get him ready to play again. That is leadership and maturity that is uncommon today. I yes, think. it is. You know what uh, I was thinking when I was watching that is, I've told you this, but one of my all-time favorite movies, top five, is Catch Me If You Can. Oh, yes. Frank and you know Abagnale what part I'm talking Jr. about. I don't yeah. know what part you're talking at about. At the end, when he goes to work for the FBI, and he he he's like, uh, "What am I going to do all weekend?" He's and you know, and um, what's his name? Uh, Tom Hanks is like, "I don't know what you're going to do." You know, I'm busy. I'm and all of a sudden, he looks up and he thinks, "Oh shit, he's going to leave." So you remember, he meets him at the airport and he says, "Go ahead, I'm not going to keep you. Go ahead, you, I, you know, because you, you, I'm not chasing you." So anyway, my point is, is he came back, right. and. So, I mean, cause it, you, he literally said, uh, Jordan said, he ain't fucking coming back. <laughs> I know. It's so but, good. You know, the and thing and is- having all of them. The other thing I love so much was watching the smiles on their faces. Oh, God. I was all, just going to say that. All, all the men involved, Rodman cracking up, Pippen cracking up, Jackson cracking up, because these were men that shared a bond. They accomplished something rare and precious and profound. And they look back at the times, the stupid stuff, all the things they went through as a team, as a family, and they can laugh about it now. It's so good. It's the essence of sports. You know what, Steve, I, I compare everything to nowadays, to the NBA nowadays, and it's not always fair. 
Agreed. But to see those characters on that team when they were walking onto the team plane and Bill Winnington <laughs> had the, you know, had the fucking old school uh, video recorder. Camcorder, right. Yeah, the cam camcorder. And you know who was sitting in the front row next to him? Rusty LaRue. And I looked and I said, I'll be goddamned if that isn't L- Rusty, Rusty LaRue. LaRue. He played at Wake Forest, uh, Zabe. He played football. He has the number one. He completed 55 passes against NC State. I'll never forget it. His senior year. And he was on the roster? Uh, no, he played three year, four years of college football and four years of college basketball and played one year of baseball. And he He's was one of on two the players roster. To, he was, she was on the team. And oh, I didn't he know that. Be, wow, oh, okay. yeah. And then he actually became a, a good player the next year when they blew the team up. I think he averaged like six and a half points or something. But. You know, to see him and then you see Judd Bushler, these guys, I mean, <laughs> but they all had a role. They all had a role, Steve. They exactly, you know, well, and their role, you know, as a guy who eventually wants to coach basketball and I coach it from the side, you know, from the stands and I officiate from the stands and everything, but teams, these guys play a role in practice. And you know what that role is, is the opposing best player or shooter. These guys have to recreate that guy. And so you, you know, they they each have a role in practice. And so people will say, well, fuck, you know, Scotty Burrell, he barely played. He was a minimal player. Bullshit. No, he was. Um, See, this is where well, you and I will you know, be great. No, but I'm saying they you, all you have a role. You came up for How'd you like when he was criticizing was Burrell for drinking was, too much? <laughs> he's like, my parents are going to see this like, shit. Don't put this hey, on. Hey, mom and dad. Your son's an alcoholic. That's what he said. It's so real. <laughs> that, so was, Jordan, that was Jordan's way of saying, hey, Scotty, you're not Rodman. Yep. Get out of the fucking clubs. You're and, drinking and, too much. Yeah. And the way and uh the thing that I love also is I think Jordan is so charismatic in his facial expressions oh. and just oh he's like an actor. He's so oh. fucking cool and he's got that that glass of scotch or whatever it is, and yeah. he's got his cigar right there. And, and life is all right. And he's just sitting there talking about how it all went down. The uh, the facial expressions he made when he was watching the Isaiah explanation have already launched a dozen or more memes on the internet I've seen them. and they're so damn funny. <laughs> I, I literally chortled out loud when he starts oh, making yeah. those faces like, yeah, I don't care what he says. I'm sure he'll come off as an asshole. Okay, fine. And he reluctantly takes the iPad, starts watching and he makes the kind of expressions you or I would make or anyone would make when a classic bullshit artist is bullshitting. Right. <laughs> so Steve, funny. this, you can't make a better documentary about, uh, and to have 10, episodes 10 hours of it i wonder how much they had to break it down to 10 oh um, who's the guy dickie simpkins did you see that yeah. tweet yeah that was they interviewed a, that, me for an hour yeah, I think Rus- part's ryan rosillo was great <laughs> he, he he pretend to quote treat D- dickie simpkins was a real scrub player on the bulls roster even about the level of rusty larue yes <laughs> and the quote would be yeah i think my part's coming up man they interviewed me oh, for yeah. like an hour yeah no so, you didn't make the yes. documentary right so funny <laughs> I, that what fooled me i thought that was really him uh what did so, you think what did you think of ron harper's quote okay whatever fuck that shit when he why would they put why would they put craig elo on him i mean they had to have had a reason maybe lenny, lenny wilkins was the head coach no of course one of the best ever hall of Famer. so he's not Great an idiot player. but he probably had some idea maybe Wilk maybe Elo guarded Jordan for much of the game and maybe he felt Elo had better sort of understanding of what he was trying to do or how to handle him Elo right. played as good a defense as you probably could 
Harper, could he have been better? Harper has long ass arms. You know, yeah. he has pterodactyl but arms. No one could have stopped that. It was amazing the double team that he split to get to it. But yes. then the quick, the quick pull through. Oh yeah, hard dribble left, and then another fucking double pump shot. I've never seen a guy. I, I remember him being extraordinary up in the air, but I can't believe how many shots he made double pumping yeah. or up. The greatest shot is that up with the right hand under with the, on the other side of the basket when he right. didn't really need to against the Lakers. I think it was, but. And then, it, and then the most iconic thing about it was the long angle shot from the other basket as Jordan is midair legs kicked out like a superhero pumping his fist, fist screaming, get out of here. You motherfuckers. Yeah. Who and to hear Will Bond say motherfuckers. I, I can't know. believe that. that was, that's what's so real about this I shit. Know. It's so authentic. Right. I'm watching ESPN. I know. And, and I get like, to hear these. This is how guys talk. Bomb. Yeah. And, 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 and when Jordan says fuck, it sounds so much better than anybody else. Oh, besides yeah. like a, a mafiosi. But right. he's, and, such, he's such a good fuck dropper. The but, way he says it. But as he's in midair pumping his fist after the ultimate dagger, who collapses in the background? Elo. Craig Elo. <laughs> Right in the front row. I mean, you you can't you can't block that out. You can't choreograph that any more perfectly. It Drama. is such an incredible moment. The other thing was watching Game Seven or Game Five, the year that the uh, Bulls lost their three-one lead. Uh, this was eighty that, the, the year seven. before they beat them. Yeah, Game Seven. Game yeah. Seven as that was the Pippen migraine game. As they're losing that game. They have a tight shot of Phil on the bench, and you can see him almost gulping for air, sort of. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, my God, he's dying right now. (laughs) This is what coaches do. They die a little bit all the time. Hey, listen, especially in Chicago, when you've got all of that pressure, the way I know that we have so much to to talk about, but the way he got the job, what they did to Collins, that's a fucking, that's a mess, but that had to have put extra well, pressure on him here's to the, perform. Here's the thing about Especially with MJ. Here's what I know about Collins, and I'll share it here on my platform because I didn't on other platforms, but I, okay. I'll do it here. Um, first and foremost, so Collins sits down, is interviewed, and he talks about how great it was to coach Michael, blah, 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 but that he kind of understood that Phil was probably being groomed to be the next head coach. He had just taken to the team to the Eastern Conference Finals and gets canned. Why? And that was never really elaborated on. And Collins doesn't seem to be overly bitter about it. He doesn't seem to still be scarred by it. It's almost like he's accepted it. And part of the reason I believe that is, is because I've had people, credible people, tell me there was something off the court that essentially mandated that Doug Collins no longer coached the Bulls. And I'll leave it at that. Let's just call it an indiscretion. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that is part of the sort of the buried sub story that can't really be talked about because, you know, you'd have to have real solid collaboration. But if you watch Collins in that interview, your logic would say, why is he not bitter? Why do you agree to sit down and talk to them? He had the team on the cusp and then was flushed. And he didn't, co- where did he coach after that? Did he go to Detroit after that? I forget, but no, because Daly was there. I'll look it up right now. Anyway. Yeah, he, well, he coached college. Right, 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 right. So anyway, um, back to the original point. And by the way, you're cutting out right now. I might have to shake my phone. Oh, shit. Is that Sorry. bad? No, no, you just cut out more. 
You moving around? Hold on. That's all right. Yeah. I'm moving around. <laughs> okay. Are you back? Can you there? hear me? Yeah, I can yeah. hear you now. Okay. I like Doug Collins. I think. Ah, uh, you're cutting out now, son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I don't. I don't know how cell phones work. You want me to hang up and call you right back? Yeah, let me do that. Yeah, hang up. Call you right back. You see, kids, um, cellular technology is still an emerging technology, and it's not perfected yet. It's only been around for 25, 30 years at the consumer level, so you can't expect these calls to work like all the time. Tell me you can hear me. I got you now, loud and clear. Okay. Okay, so anyway, uh, back, to, back to our point. So the way that Phil, Con- Phil Jackson got the job, you know, they try, you know, Krause saw him as a talent, as a coach, tried to bring him under Stan Albeck, and because he dressed like such a ragamuffin, Albeck was like, no, get this guy out of here. Brings him yeah. back and says, dress up this time, and he gets the gig, and then he ends up taking over. The footage of Phil Jackson coaching in Puerto fucking Rico. <laughs> Classic. Did you hear the story? The mayor shot one of the referees, and yes. the only penalty was that he couldn't watch the – he couldn't come to any more home, home games. games. That's, right. <laughs> ah, that's fucking great. And that's and you know in in a day and age now where former players with still sweat on their socks from playing in the NBA are given head coaching jobs, think about how different it was back in the day. A guy like Phil Jackson had to go slum it in Puerto Rico, and then the A or the CBA in Albany. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, Arena. yeah. Nowadays, if you know you're a, a somewhat dynamic ex player, they'll flip you a team right now and say, "Good luck, give it a go." Yep. I'll tell you the the way they dove into uh, to his Phil Jackson's background. I thought it was incredible. I mean they they just touch on so much stuff, his background, and then how he talked about how some Native American families used to come and stay in their guest room, right? And he really got into that, and then. Because, you know, you heard so much about his coaching, how philosophical it was. And how about him with the team doing, like, yoga at half court? Sure. Shows him stretching and stuff. Yeah. But um, he was a great player. I think it's really neat to see video of these old guys playing, especially for the Knicks. Oh. He and guys like Mike Reardon and Bill Bradley. I mean, he's been there. He's done it. He looked like. No wonder he's a great fucking coach. He looked like a marionette. All elbows, knees. And shoulders. Mm-hmm. It was, yep. I mean, it was incredible how skinny he was. And he I could actually, you, it'd be like if Abraham Lincoln played basketball, <laughs> that's what he would have looked like. Exactly. <laughs> I'm serious. I know. Yeah. And hey, how about, uh, how about the Tex Winter thing? I thought that was incredible. How he it was, is. Now you yeah, tell me as a basketball guy, is the triangle offense revolutionary or is it just basic ball movement? Is uh, there anything no. special to the triangle or hey. is it just like, Hey, why don't you pass it around to your teammates? No, the triangle, which is, I don't, there's a lot of names for it, flex, motion, different things. But the whole point of a triangle or that kind of a movement is you've got to have all uh, cylinders clicking, meaning you've got to have the outside shooters. Well, I mean, how many fucking outside shooters do you need on one team? Craig Hodges, Steve Kerr, Judd Bushler, John BJ Armstrong, John Paxson. Okay, there's four guys right there. Then you got to have a center that when he touches the ball, when he comes up and gets the ball or a swing man, a four man, he's not going to square up <laughs> shot fake and go to the hole. He's going to, he's literally a receptor. He's receiving the basketball. And then the 
the motion begins. For the purpose, so Bill Cartwright. Yeah. Bill Cartwright. Right. For the purpose Luke of kicking it out. Yeah. You had to have guys that knew how to play the game and, and knew and, knew how knew what their role was. Right. Well, and then the other thing is, is when you've got Pippen and Jordan, you can't double team. You can't come off your guy and help on on Jordan because he's going to find Scotty. Now, Scotty's going to find Jordan. Now, the incredible thing is that Lakers series, how they dove into uh, the huddle and they said, and Phil said, Paxson's open. Get Paxson the ball because they were clamping down on Michael so much. And I'll be goddamned if he didn't hit. I remember watching that. I'm like, oh, shit, Paxson's going off. Yeah, but, I you know what I'm talking out. about. Where Jordan was getting double teamed, and he threw it to the corner twice, and boom, boom. Uh, what was the what year was those finals? 1992 finals. I don't know. I'm not sure. Come on, Ronnie. I want to find the box score because I want to know uh, finals MVP Michael Jordan. Yeah. Oh no, those yeah, Trailblazers. I miss, I okay, miss this speak too many times. I miss speak too many times so, on this podcast. I say so shit. What? I'm like, why the fuck did you say that? So what? We all make mistakes for God's <laughs> yeah, sake. I can't throw shit out there like that. Go mop it up. We got a lot to get to. Right. Hatred, G- hatred of Pistons. Chuck Daly is the classic boss you sent me. He looks like a fucking, speaking Mafia of the guy. Sopranos. Oh, oh, yeah. Like for a team that was so hateable to begin with, to have Chuck Daly on the sideline looking like <laughs> this Bob boss, yes. I, I said to myself, this is out of a movie. Like, of oh, yeah. course you'd get a coach that looked like that. And they were such yeah. a heel team. It was amazing. And Choppy it, and rugged, yet scorers out the ass. The microwave. Right. Benny Johnson. What a nickname. <laughs> I said to Winston, I said, his nickname's the microwave. He looked at me, he's like, what? I said, yeah, because he could heat up so quickly. He's just started laughing. <laughs> right. And, you know, I sent you a text. You know who my three favorite players are ever. Who? One is Reggie Miller, because I'm an Indiana boy. Right. Two is Bradley Beal, which people are going to laugh at that shit, but he is. Oh but number three is Joe Dum- Joe Dumars. Okay. Joe fucking Dumars. I loved the way he carried himself on the court. Where was he? How come he didn't sit down for this? What about Lane Beer? Yeah. What maybe, about well, Mahorn? It's still early. Still That's, early. That is true. By the way, John Paxson in that game, 9 of 12. There you go. Nine of 12, including two free throws. He took no threes in that game. Nine for 12 on jumpers, and they were all like two steps inside the arc. Those would be considered bad shots today. Oh, yeah, the mid-range game. It's non-existent. <laughs> That's right. Completely non-existent. <laughs> but I, I didn't hate the Pistons. You um, didn't? No, I liked I liked the toughness. I liked it. I, I, I had a high school coach. Who preached the uh, same again, thing? Being a football player, no, yeah. Well, just take guys out, foul, hard no, fouls. No, no, no. In the if lane. you're gonna foul, foul. You know this bullshit nowadays, Steve, that you have with the and ones. The the officials are so and one happy. Right. It's like a fucking epidemic. It's the COVID nineteen before COVID nineteen happened. Is the and one? It's because they love the they love making the call. Sure. It's a simple call. I've told you, it's going to please. At least half the stadium, yeah. and if the people that are it's called against, you can't really argue because they might have touched them. So see, there's no hey, there's no and one back then because if I'm going to foul you, I'm going to fucking foul you, and bring that shit in here soft. You're going to get it. So, so do you think do you think the league was better back in '88 when you could knock guys out of the sky? With I, pretty I much do, no fear of getting kicked out of the league or kicked I, out of the I, game. I, it was it was. Much, much better. But again, the guys nowadays are so big and so strong that, and they're getting paid so much money that you couldn't dream of doing that. We know that. Right. It's too yeah. much invested in these guys. But yeah, for me, 
that was the NBA that I grew up with. So that's the NBA that I loved. And because of the drama and it kept it, you know, the officials, I, I told you this, the officials back then weren't so worried about their hair gel and their fucking tight <laughs> shirts and their muscles and, and how they ran up and down to the watch these guys. It's all about how they run, you know, Ooh, the, the league won't even put a guy just, in who runs fucking funny. Just you know, so Kersey, just Kersey didn't give a shit about working oh, yeah. out. Yeah, Mike Mathis, Mike yeah, Mathis. Joey Crawford, That's right. <laughs> Dick, you know, even Dick Pavetta back then. But oh, uh, these guys didn't give a shit about that. And Ronnie Garrettson, these guys. They. By the way, they, uh, in '88 was the first year they added a third ref to NBA games. Yeah, and they need. Yeah, and let me tell you, that is one of the. As a former college basketball official, there is nothing worse than working a game. When you have, to, when there are two guys that you go in, in the locker room, you know who you're going to be with, and one of them you know has a good chance of fucking up this game, and the other guy, you're looking at him and you're like, the two of us could do this in our sleep. Right. So you know, it's you don't need three officials. I'm telling you, it just opens up. People say, well, the players are too big, they're too fast. In it's 19, too many opportun- in 1990, they added the uh, breakaway foul rule. Mm-hmm. which was meant to prevent pretty much guys being clotheslined as they went for a layup. You know, Kurt Rambis taking out, you know, Kevin McHale, NBA Finals. Right, and then right, the same year, they added the flagrant fouls divided into two categories, flagrant one, flagrant two. Yes. So, How about the – do you remember the three to make two? Oh, yeah, that was way, that was, that was way yeah, back. That was, it was like the 70s. That? Yeah, three yeah. three free throws to make two. Yes, it was three to make two. You know how many listeners right now are like, what is it? What the fuck are they talking right, about? Look right, it like, up. Talk about a low bar. It's a free throw. You're a professional <laughs> basketball used player. You to get three to make two. That's yeah. what it was called. Oh, you miss one, no big deal. Try again. Go yeah. ahead, Junior. Um, and Rick Barry would shoot him underhand, and he'd never miss. Where do you stand so, on the no handshakes thing, just as a final uh, thought on uh, uh, those two uh, things? I don't know how you can even – look back on any of that and want to change any of it or evaluate any of it. It was, there was a such minute. a, don't you think that Isaiah and the Pistons were quote straight up bitches as Horace Grant called them? Okay. No, because they no? fucking hated each other. That's what, that was the best part of it for me. Where's sportsmanship, you, Ronnie? I'm shocked hey, by this take by you, Steve. Do you know what is happening right now? I, it drives me nuts to see these fucking guys, bro, hugging, and hand and talking about <laughs> whispering in each other's ear, meet me at so-and-so club and this and that do that shit off the court. I don't like it. I don't love, I don't, I don't dig the hugging and the talking. If you, I, I mean, if someone beat me or if we lost, I didn't want to fucking look at him. Okay. If, but what about at the kids, end of it, it hey, game your... seven, game seven series different. Yes. Just like hockey. I would like hockey. the NBA to have a formal handshake line like hockey at the end of series. Oh, no just way. yeah, I do. No I would, way. I would, yes. I would like it. I, I, I like respect amongst the the best in the game. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a sap that way, I guess. And you, with a young boy, I mean, you don't want Winston learning to disrespect his opponents by walking but off the court. Steve, I, you're talking about a different era. You asked me about that back then, oh. and I said that oh. I can't change. I wouldn't dream of changing or evaluating. Yeah, but anything it sounds like you. It sounds like you want the Oklahoma city thunder to walk off the court these days. No, I didn't say that. I just, the far extreme, the other end of the spectrum. I don't like, Okay, I don't like the other end of the spectrum. Why is there real heat between Isaiah and Jordan? Is it the fact that Isaiah organized an all-star freeze out 
of Jordan his rookie year because he came into the league and he had his special shoes and everyone's raving about him? Or is it because Jordan then orchestrated a, a snub of Isaiah for the Dream Team in 92 that still haunts Isaiah today? Is it that Isaiah being Mr. Chicago Prep Basketball, the greatest product the city has ever produced, arguably, uh, versus Jordan, the kid from North Carolina who came into Chicago and won everybody everybody's hearts? Uh, I think that these two, what took place on the basketball court, I think that that is what dictates their relationship. Okay. I don't think it has much to do outside of it. You know, Isaiah Thomas is a very complicated guy. He played for Bob Knight. People know that. But the fact that he went to Indiana University and played with Bob Knight, there's a great story. Coach Knight goes up to a recruiting visit and walks into the house, and Isaiah had seven brothers and two sisters. So okay. Knight walks in, and his older brother wanted him to go to DePaul. It was done. You're going to be the savior. You're going to go play for Louis Meyer, or is that his name? Uh, Ray Meyer. Ray Meyer, yeah. Louis Meyer's an Indy 500 driver from years ago. So you're going to go play for Ray Meyer. Ray Meyer's kid took over. No, Joey Ron, Meyer. Joey Meyer, right. Yes, took over. So you're going to go play for DePaul. So Ron so Meyer was the former coach of the Colts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Oscar Meyer is a hot dog. <laughs> Okay, sorry. So, Go ahead. <laughs> so I know we got to wind down, but so he he walks in and his brother. I know a lot about Isaiah. So his brother, older brother, right off the handshake, says, "Just lays into him. You're a fucking cocksucker. You mistreat your players. You mistreat the black players. This and that. This and that." And Isaiah was on the recruiting to, visit. Oh yeah. Oh, walks into the house and his brother lays into him. He was so distraught. He was trying to. He was trying to. He's trying to sabotage it. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it made Isaiah. You remember Isaiah was a little kid. He was small. He was a little guy. He was picked on. He grew up. He became a. He looked like one playground. of the Jackson Five. Yeah. He became a. He became a playground legend uh, in Chicago. But he was always picked on. His brothers are always picking on him. But. The reason why he went to Indiana is because he need, he wanted to get away. He grew up in fucking Chicago West Side ghetto. I mean, the worst of the worst. Oh, his the legend was his mom put a shotgun in the face of one of the gangbangers and said, you stay away from my boy. That's exactly right. Right. So he goes to Indiana because he needs discipline and he knows it'll be good for him. He, his freshman year, before his freshman year, Bob Knight's the coach of the Pan Am team. You remember the story where he did the interview with Connie Chung? It wasn't a good one. Actually, this is a different. That was a different era. But so, uh, so Isaiah is not performing. He's just not hustling or whatever it is. He probably was, but Bob may wanted to make an example of him. So he lays into him in front of the entire team. You know, basically, you can't fucking play at Indiana. You're no good. You need to go back home. You need to go to DePaul and all this bullshit. Throws him out, and then they go to Indiana. He threw threw him out of his first practice. First practice. And looking back on it, Isaiah Thomas said it was the best thing for him. Made him realize he wasn't the superstar and made him realize that, you know, his mom wasn't there for him and his brothers and sisters. He was here on his own and it was Coach Knight's way or it was no way. And of course, he won the national championship beating Carolina in 81, which was before the, you know, Michael Jordan was there. But right. He's a complicated guy. He's yeah. had average issues. fifteen. You know, average fifteen a game. Played thirty five minutes a game as a two year player at Indiana. Then went pro. So obviously he was very good right away. And Bobby Knight. Oh, shit, he was, and he was player of the and the MVP of the entire tournament in eighty one. He was just magical to watch him play. But you remember, there's a couple things about Isaiah Thomas that people don't know. If you recall, there was he attempt, attempted suicide. 
When? Claims he didn't. Oh, but, when he was uh, with the Knicks after the yes. Knicks, right? Yeah, I mean, well, was it him or was it what is it? What a family member and a, this sexual harassment lawsuit when he you yes. know ran the Knicks into the ground and he he killed the CBA when he became the commissioner of the league because he didn't know what the fuck he was doing. He he mm-hmm. is he's a very weaselly guy. I don't know if he has many friends, but he was a hell of a basketball player. That's for and sure. he's a very successful businessman. Is Incredibly. he now? Yes, he's got a lot of holdings. He owns a lot of real estate. More than Dumars, because I hear Dumars is doing great in construction. Yes, yeah. Like, you wouldn't think, like, you know, not some bullshit restaurant. Not the restaurants are bullshit. Not like some, you know, recording studio. I know what you're saying. Like a real titan of industry, you know? It's like, all right, I'm Joe Dumars. What am I going to do? Construction seems like a good business. Let's do this. Right. And then the last thing you said, I know we got to go, but you 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 sent me a little tidbit here about weightlifting in basketball. You wrote, I thought it was really cool how they showed, I think BJ Armstrong said, we didn't go on vacation after we lost. We all, right. just, we were right back in the gym. And yeah. I loved that. And he, so Jordan said, you know, I was a 200 pound kid getting pushed around. He hit the weights. They even have his trainer. pounds of armor. Thanks to Tim Grover, his personal trainer. Yeah. And the rest is history. Ronnie, as always, a pleasure, my friend. We'll talk next week. Love you, brother. Take right. care. Oh, by the way, do you have any masks left? I moved some masks for you last <laughs> yeah, week. I have a lot of masks. Okay, N95s. Call Ronnie. Call K- me. Email K-95s, me. N95s. And I again just got in hand sanitizer. So hit me up. All right, there you go. Thanks, Ronnie. See you, bud. Bye, bye. I'm working out my commission for uh, moving Ron's medical supplies with MedTrax USA hand sanitizer. How about that? Jump on it, baby. I'll end on this. Have you ever heard of the mythical? Man Month. I found this the other day reading some stuff. And it applies to what's going on now in the country with the coronavirus and the lockdowns. I think anyone who is a critical thinker and honest has to be able to consider this question. Is it possible we're doing the exact wrong thing right now regarding our overall strategy and trade-offs regarding COVID-19, et cetera, both in terms of fighting the virus and certainly in terms of the economic destruction we are currently absorbing. One has to consider this if you're a free thinker and if you have any experience in the real world in which there are counterintuitive outcomes and results all the time in business and in life and in medicine and politics. Counterintuitive. You think, well, for sure, if I do this, then It'll result in that, and the answer is no. If you do this, actually, it's the opposite of that. It's worse than that. So that brings me to the Mythical Man Month. It is a book on software engineering and project management by a guy named Fred Brooks, and it was published in 1975. Its central theme is that adding manpower to a late software project actually makes it later. This idea is known as the as Brooks's law and it's part of the mythical man month. His observations are based on his experience at IBM while managing the development of OS 360. He had added more programmers to a project that was falling behind schedule, a decision he would later conclude had counterintuitively delayed the project even further. He also made the mistake of asserting of asserting that one project involved in writing an Al Goal compiler, he said this will take six months, regardless of the number of workers involved. Guess what? It required longer. 
The tendency for managers to repeat such errors in project development led Brooks to quip that his book is called The Bible of Software Engineering because, quote, everybody quotes it, some people read it, and a few people go by it. The book is widely regarded as the as a classic on the human elements of software engineering. Man month is a hypothetical unit of work representing the work done by one person in one month. Brooks's law says that the possibility of measuring useful work in man months is a myth. And hence it's the centerpiece of the book. So you'd think we got a software project that's running late. Well shit, more manpower. Get in there. Let's go. Chop, chop. Hurry up. Divide it up. You write this code. You write this code. It turns out it makes it worse. Well, are we right now in the middle of that with the coronavirus? Are you able to even ask yourself, you know, I think we're doing the right thing, but and even though it's painful economically, but I'm still not sure. And I'll listen to counter arguments. So many people out there, so righteous, so certain. They won't even consider that we're not just doing something that doesn't have any effect. They won't even consider that we're doing the exact wrong thing and making it worse. I mean, if you read some of the lockdown hysterics on team lockdown, it is amazing. And it seems like it's only getting worse in some parts of the country. For example, well... Here's a huge story, I think. The Mayo Clinic is furloughing 40% of its 70,000 employees or reducing their hours. This is an emergency, people, that should be garnering front page, top of the newscast headlines, and it's happening at other places around the country. This is a disaster. And yet, what is the press asking the president about? Things like, you lost more people in six weeks than any other president. You deserve to be reelected this fall? I mean, clown question, bro. A group of professors are petitioning all major networks to not carry Trump's press conferences live. They want to de-platform the fucking president. What times are we living in? An article in The Atlantic says regulated speech on the internet is a good thing and it's a wave, it's the wave of the future. Welcome to China, people. Speaking of, Bill Gates said China did a lot right, quote-unquote, early on in the pandemic. Am I taking crazy pills? Are you fucking kidding me, Bill Gates? And then there are the whores at the trough. Not only did Harvard and other universities with massive endowments say, oh, free money, we'll take it. The Lakers are now giving back nearly $5 million in PPP funds, payroll, payroll protection plan funds, whatever. The Lakers, the Lakers. They're like, oh, free money. I don't know, boss. We're the Lakers. We're pretty rich. Yeah, but it's free money. Yeah, but it seems kind of wrong. Like that money is supposed to be for restaurants and things that are closed now. You know, in addition to us, should we just file the paperwork? It's free money. In Illinois, the governor has been shot down By a lawsuit, the Supreme Court ruling that he cannot extend the lockdowns past May 1. Don't know what that's going to do exactly, but Illinois is hard down to keep everyone locked down for a long time. This despite the fact there is a thousand-person house party in Chicago. Texas has a plan to reopen. Some say it doesn't go far enough. Of course, everyone else is shrieking, it's too soon. Georgia is already moving uh, towards that. People are freaking out. Florida probably won't be far behind. 
Hartford, Wisconsin says it won't enforce the lockdown anymore. That's way north up there. Uh, The city of Milwaukee says it will not have its July 3rd fireworks. You think, that's two months. You don't want to wait a month at least? I think the real answer is they know they're going to lose so much money, they don't have money for fireworks. Trust me, people are going to be blowing off their own fireworks in Wisconsin backyards come July 4th. Oh yeah, Wisconsin is now allowing single cart riders on golf courses, which were closed at first, then opened, and now they're like, yeah, I guess, because they had to, to comply with the ADA, they had to give people that had ADA certifications a chance to ride their cart. And so then they're like, well, we'll allow single cart riders. It's almost like the science of the risk of playing golf was never there. The science. The NBA is scrambling to come up with a workout plan for May 8th when some team facilities may open. Get this, the NBA says that players at the team facilities, if and when they open, will have to wear a mask at all times unless they're exerting themselves. (laughs) Well, that'll work. Okay, I'm done shedding the virus. Now I'm going to put my mask on so I don't, or something like that. Good piece in Commentary Magazine about elite panic. Disaster researchers call this phenomenon elite panic when authorities believe their own citizens will become dangerous, they begin to shift their focus on controlling the public rather than on addressing the disaster itself. They cite an earthquake from the early 1900s as an example of it. It sounds awfully familiar right now. This is why surfers get arrested in Malibu, while in New York the headline says, Subway conductor confronts naked defecating man on train car. Did those people get arrested? No. Even Dr. Daniel Murphy, who is an emergency physician at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx, who's been in the ER every day the last couple of weeks, contracted COVID-19 himself. His two daughters, one of whom is a nurse, got it as well. They're both fine, he says. Thank God. He writes an op-ed today saying, My goodness, we've got to open up the country to some degree. We've got to get back to work. This is a a secondary disaster in the making. Will people listen to the doctors? And finally, a word to the sports world. Wake up. Wake up to these people. The Gavin Newsoms, the Eric Garcettis. They are not your friend. They do not want to help you get back on your feet and conducting sports games in a responsible fashion. No, they would love to hold you hostage this fall. In fact, I bet they have plans on doing it. If you give them an inch, they'll take you to the cleaners. You'll be begging to play in an empty stadium in Missoula, Montana next year if you show weakness. Leagues need to start talking with certainty. Like, we will play this year. It's just a matter of when, where, and how. And if certain states want to say, oh, not here, you're not, then you say, we'll find a state that'll have us. We'll organize a way to do it. And you tell your players, listen, if you want to forfeit your $25 million this year and not play, let us know. If you want to scrape back half of it, let's let's fucking play. Arizona, Florida, no fans, fans, whatever, we'll figure it out. At some point, I'm pretty sure they're going to wake up to it, but I don't know. And they may just be tiptoeing right now. I'm telling you, watch out. California 
could be the one that says to the NFL, oh, no, it's too dangerous. We can't let you play in a stadium. No, we don't have a vaccine. Sorry. And then the NFL is going to be in a real spot, aren't they? But maybe California then, after negotiation, says, well, if you agree to buy a million test kits and provide these supplies and add this security and, you know, next thing you know, it's a $5 million payment to the city of Santa Clara from the good old NFL. And they'd pay it to get permission. I think I think you know this. Sometimes I wonder, though. wonder if they're talking in behind closed doors like, yeah, we, we need to fucking grab our nutsack here because this is what's going on in the country. We'll see. It is not even May 1st yet. I said, call me on May 1st. The world will look a lot different on May 1st. And I said, the world's going to look a lot different on June 1st as well as, as well as July 1st. So we shall see. That'll be it for today. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to Ron for coming on as well. Make sure to rate and review. It helps out with the iTunes algorithms. Tell a friend. Subscribe to Fridays as well. Get the Zabecast app on your local app store. Have a great Tuesday, everybody, and we will see you next time.